Thanks, Rachel, for reading for us. If you keep hold of a Bible and uh, turn back to that first reading we had on page 310 uh, from uh, 2 Samuel, as we, we're going to spend our time this morning there, and I shall lead us in a prayer. Uh, Lord God, we have indeed, as we've been thinking about already this morning, good news to share. Thank you for the opportunities uh, that Advent and Christmas brings for jazz carols and other things, we pray that many will come. And it's good for our hearts as well to be encouraged by the message of Advent and Christmas. And we ask that you would, by your Spirit, uh, cause this Word to go deep in us so that it will draw us closer to your Son, the Lord Jesus, that we would trust and love Him. Amen. Uh, well, we're heading into a busy time, aren't we? There's, uh, you know that, school stuff, work stuff, Christmas prep, um, and it is also Advent, as we've been thinking about this morning. The season the church doesn't just kind of look back to the first coming of Jesus, but looks forward uh, to His return. With all the busyness going on, though, I guess some of us could arrive at church this morning and our heads are just full of things to do. I can imagine, I don't know, but I can imagine that some of you have probably had one of those weeks where you're, you're waking up at four in the morning. Do you ever have those weeks? Those times you wake up at four, four o'clock in the morning, your head is just buzzing with all the things uh, you've got to do. Maybe it's exams coming, maybe work, maybe work is pretty hard. I know for some that's been the case. Work has been really hard and difficult at the moment. Maybe you're just anticipating Christmas stress. Uh, so much to do. You've got big things. It was going to be busy all week, and now you're here at church uh, for an hour or so, uh, uh, and it, it seems small, doesn't it? Uh, this thing just coming on a Sunday seems like a small thing. Your head's already, maybe even as you're sitting here, your head's already into Monday. You're already thinking about the emails you've got to write or some other work you've got to do. That's the big thing. You know that feeling as well of looking at something and suspecting that you, you're not quite seeing it uh, the right way, that your perspective's wrong? Maybe something like these. Uh, something, something looks big, and it's actually quite small. Or maybe something uh, looks small. It's a clever photo, isn't it? And it's actually, you know, it's, it's quite big. Or something looks this way up. You see that, at least this way up, and you think, it doesn't, it doesn't seem quite right, but you can't get your head around it, and it, it's, actually, it's actually more this way up. It's like, you see what people are just doing, they're just lying in the street. But you, you look at those kind of things, don't you, and it, it takes a real effort to, to try and look differently, to try and flip things around, to look at it a different way. Well, I'm praying as we, as we head into Advent over these next few weeks that God will use Advent to help us to do that, to just change our perspective on some of the big things and, and the small things. And this morning, we're, we're with someone in 2 Samuel 7 who's got busy plans. He's got lots of things he wants to be busy with, good things, really. But then God speaks. Two things, two things we think about uh, this morning. And, and the first one, just to begin this way, look, before you get on with the work you've got to do, and you've got lots, haven't you? Uh, come and look at this chapter with me, chapter 7. It's King David. And things, if you picked up from the start, things are pretty sweet for him at the moment. He's the king. He's established as king. 
He's defeated his enemies. He's got himself a new home. It's a palace. And then you saw in verse 2, he starts thinking to himself, what, what's next? Uh, and he says this, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. He wants to build God a house. Replace the old tent where the, the ark was, the, the kind of visible sign of God's presence. But that night God comes and what he says flips David's perspective. And it's here, I think, in part for busy people like us too. God says, in effect, to David in these verses, do you know who I am? We see that in verses 4 to 7. And then he'll say, do you know who you are? Verses 8 to 11. You think about God asking you those questions. Do you know who I am? Do you know who you are? Look, do you, do you know who I am? Uh, verse 5, God, God says to David, are you, are you the one to build a house, uh, to build me a house? Uh, the emphasis is on the kind of you, that you feel God's tone is somewhere between amusement and kind of putting David in his place. And he sort of says, verse 7, have, if you look down to that, have I ever said, this is God says, have I ever said, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Have I ever said that? David, you're right. And by the way, I know it's confusing. I'm called David, and I keep saying David, but it's King David we're talking about there. Um, but uh, David, you're right. I've not got a house. Did you ever stop and think why I've not asked for one? It's a good question, isn't it? David, before you get on with your plans, did, did you ever stop and ask why I've not asked for one yet? You see the reason God gives verse 6. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. And he goes on a little bit. And what God's saying is, look, when my people came out of Egypt, they were moving around in tents. So I had a tent with them. And they're in the land now, but they're not quite as settled as I'd like them to be. So I'm not settling down yet. That's what God says. You get that? Here's another little thing to try and change your perspective. It might be hard to imagine, especially for, for those of you who are younger. But there was a time when I was a teenager. Just, just try and flip your, your thinking, your view. The, the hair was, was longer. The looks were better. Just imagine a kind of young George Clooney, something like that. <laughs> There was a time when I was a teenager, and as you get older as a teenager, do you, do you remember that time you get to, some of you might not be quite there yet, when, when I was at the stage where I was staying out, not past my bedtime. No longer was anyone saying to me, it's past your bedtime. I was staying out, not past my bedtime, but past my mum's bedtime. That was very exciting, and I remember I used to get home on nights like that, and I'd be at the front door, and I would look up, I'd look up, and I'd see her bedroom light on. It was still on. And then I'd get out my key and I'd walk in the door. And by the time I got in the door, the bedroom light was off. I could see it from under the door. She was only waiting up for me. Uh, my mom doing that. The light on. As soon as I walked in, the light goes off. And I said to her on several occasions, Mom, just a bit ridiculous. Mom, you don't need to stay up. You don't need to wait up for me. Moms, they're really silly, aren't they, with that kind of stuff. You don't need to wait up. 
And I guess she didn't, but she could have said to me, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? I'm your mum, and I don't settle till I know you're settled. And if you can imagine that in that silly way, you understand what God's showing David. David, do you know who I am? My people don't look after me. I look after them. How did I know my mum loved me? Lots of ways, lots of ways, but one of the visuals, her bedroom light was on till I was home. How did Old Testament Israel know that God loved them? Lots of ways. But one of the visuals, when they were living all unsettled, he came and lived unsettled with them. And it is written here, so you know too, whether you had a mum who loved you well or not, Christian, you have a God who does. What kind of self-respecting God? You think about this, what what kind of a self-respecting God who's meant to be glorious would come and live in a shabby tent? Well, the Bible will say the same kind of God who would be born into a shabby manger. And King David needed to know this And so do you. So do you. If you're heading into a Monday that will be all unsettled, this God will come with you. And what about David? David, do you know who you are? I mean, you're the king. You've defeated your enemies. But but God says, in effect, in these next set of verses, the kind of 7 to 11, David, I, I hope you don't think you've been... As the king, you've been looking after these people for, for me. You see verse 8? If you've got that in front of you, verse 8, God says this, I took you and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. Now, just if you've been reading that, look up for a moment, because this is, this is one of those points. You, it seems like a little thing, but you want to get this clear. God saying to David something like this, I, I think, David, you're not looking after these people for me. I'm looking after my people through you. And that's a different perspective. And you want to make sure you, you get that clear in your head. David, it's not primarily you for me. It is me for them through you. I heard a lovely comment the other day parent of uh, someone at Grafted said about one of the leaders, uh, their daughter always feels noticed and cared for by them. It's a big thing, isn't it? It's a good thing when you hear something like that, uh, to have someone, a leader in your church youth group uh, who notices and cares for you. It's what leaders should do. And in a right way, they become big in our eyes because it's just so delightful and good. But then you come to 2 Samuel 7 and you, you pass a leader like that through the lens, if you like, of 2 Samuel 7. And God says there's a bigger perspective to this. Make sure you see it. 
the reason you've got leaders who notice and care for you is because they are part of the means by which God wants to show he notices and cares for you. Uh, those of you, just for a moment, those of you who are grafted or, or pathfinders, I don't know if you ever feel like this. I don't know if you ever feel leaders are great. Some of the leaders in our youth work, they're great, but, but God feels a bit distant. He feels a little bit distant at times. And I think this would say, look, he, he knows you feel that. He really does know you feel that, so he's given you good leaders to come close that you can see and talk to, but understand it's God for you through them. Look, all sorts of things going on at this time of year, all sorts of work you've got to be busy with, but you need to know what God is like. So before you get on with the work you've got to do, make sure you know and remember how God works for you. Here's the second thing. Look, before you get swamped with your Christmas plans, something else to do. Look, verse 10 here in this passage, it's interesting. I don't know if you noticed. David, we were told at the beginning, has is, is got rid of his enemies. His people are at peace. He wants to build a house for God. But you come to verse 10, and God starts speaking about what seems to be bigger plans for his people. He wants to provide a place for them, a home. Puts it like this, so they can have a home of their own. It'll be a place where they won't be disturbed. Wicked people, he says, will not oppress them anymore. Well, I thought they had peace. I thought they already had that. What's going on? Why does he want to give them what he seemed to be saying they've already got? Isn't that a little bit confusing? I think what's happening here is one of those places uh, where God seems to give a kind of sneaky peek into his, his big future-saving plans. People in the Old Testament... It knew there was more to come. They had that perspective, even though they saw things that were happening at the time. It was, it was a future where there was a place where all the problems that had started with Adam in the garden would be gone. Sin and wickedness dealt with. No wars anymore. No abuse. No consequences of sin. No more graveside tears. A home where if you belong there, it's just brilliant forever. And God's saying, David, you, you want to build a house for me. But I need to tell you, the house I'm really going to build, you can't do it. You can't deal with death. You can't undo the problems of sin. You can't make people safe forever. That's the house I need someone to build. You think, who could build a house like that? Who could build a house with all those kind of things? And like, who would invite you? Who would invite you into a house like that? What kind of a person would they have to be? And God says in this Old Testament passage, do you want to meet him? Do you want to meet this person? That's what verses 12 to 17 are about. 
if you begin to get that, you move to the edge of your seat and say, I'd like a look at a person like that who could build a home like that, who would invite me into a house like that. Who is he? Look, here's some things. He's, he's the king. See, verse 12, uh, we're told he will be one of David's offspring. He's going to be from this family. He'll be a king, and he'll have a title. He, he'll be called the Son of God. Verse 14 I will be his father, God says, and he will be my son. It's a funny title, isn't it, the, the, the son of God? What, what does it mean? I don't know if you've heard of, have you heard of the, the former boxer George Foreman? Um, he was a former heavyweight champion. Uh, he also makes grills, uh, George Foreman grills. You might have heard of him that way, but he, he was a boxer. I found this out about him. He has 10 sons, and he called them all George. Every single one of them are call, is called George. They have different nicknames. Still a bit weird, isn't it? It is a bit weird. He said, I read some interviews, he said one of the reasons is, as a boxer, when you've been as punched as much as I have, it's hard to remember names, so I've called them all George. It's much easier that way. But the other reason he tells his boys, apparently, is we all share the same name. So what one George Foreman does reflects on all the George Foremans, because if you hear George Foreman has done this, it affects all of us. If one George Foreman goes up, we all go up. If one George Foreman goes down, we all go down. Still a bit weird, isn't it? Even with that explanation. But look, if you can get past the weirdness, it might give you an insight into, a little bit into this title, The Son of God. In the ancient world, a son was meant to represent his father. That's the way it worked. What the son was like showed you what the father was like. So the Son of God is meant to display on earth the will and rule and goodness and glory of his Father in heaven. This person is the king. And he'll be the Son of God. He'll show you what God's like. And one day this passage, God says through it, he'll occupy an eternal throne. Verse 17 your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, the way it's written, this passage, it, it talks about one person who's really amazing. But if you notice it in verse 14, it talks about someone who's doing things wrong. I think what God's doing is he's talking about the king, if you like, as one thing. But we're meant to understand there'll be a long line of them. And most of them won't be great, but he's saying, I won't change my plans, David. I'm making this a covenant promise to you. Verse 15, you just notice that where he says, but my love will never be taken away from him. That, that word for love there is the word for God's covenant love. This line of kings, I'll keep working through them until this promised one comes. Sorry, I know this is a, a bit of work, but I, I do want you to, to try and get this. Just, just think about how God is saying all this to David. He, he said in verse 12, I'll put these up as well, I think. Does this come on the screen? He's saying to David, one day you'll die. He says in verse 14, some of your descendants will sin in really bad ways. He says in verse 16, my plans will last forever. And you, you put those things together and begin to understand what God's telling us about the promise he's making. 
He's saying this. Death can't destroy it. Sin won't defeat it. Time won't exhaust it. And it's all going to be fulfilled by one person. All you've got to do is come to him. Who could, who could do that? Who could handle death for you? Who could defeat sin for you? Who could hold you safe eternally? I don't know if you've ever had that feeling of sitting in a room somewhere and you, you've not heard anything, but you just get a sense someone else has come into the room. You know that feeling, you, you've not seen them yet, you didn't hear anything, but you just feel someone else is there in the room with you. You sometimes get that feeling when you're reading the Bible. You've not seen him. His name's not been mentioned. But you read 2 Samuel 7 and you, you know who's come. The writer to the Hebrews quotes in the New Testament, quotes this king as saying, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And then the gospel writer John, he knows who this is when he says, Jesus performed many other signs, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's the one 2 Samuel 7 was talking about and that by believing you may have life in his name. He died, but death couldn't hold him. He took the sin that defeated you, and he's defeated it, and he's been raised up eternally to make you safe forever. He is the king, the son of God. He is God's covenant promise to you. And so before you get swamped by your Christmas plans, look, be overwhelmed by God's Christmas plans, with all that's going on, with your head being in Monday already, Christmas can seem like a small thing. Advent wants to change your perspective. This is the big thing. What are we meant to do with that this morning? Look, David started this chapter ready to get really busy and really busy, uh, do all sorts of things, do stuff. And he'll be busy enough come chapter 8, but if you were to read on into chapter 7, what he does at this point is he just goes in and sits before and thanks God who is as good as this. So before we do anything else, before we sing again, that's what we're going to do just for a moment. Before you get back on with all your Christmas plans, we're just going to sit for a minute so we can have time to praise a God who has plans like this and loves us. I'm going to invite the musicians to come back up so they are ready. But let's the rest of us just have a moment to sit before God and bring our own thoughts and prayers to Him.